Opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer feared, if his protection is gone and your enemies are near, if you've seen the seas spill over and the mountains shake, break, and fall, if the moon ever turns blood red and you can't see the sun at all, rise up. No matter if the prize is high in the new abolitionist radio on the Black Talk Radio Network. A program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st century legalized slavery. Currently hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed with commentary by guests and callers. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking as it is allowed through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is the October 18th, 2017 broadcast of New Abolitionist Radio. On this day in 1867, the U.S. formally took possession of Alaska after purchasing the territory from Russia for $7.2 million, or less than two cents an acre. The Alaska Purchase Compromise comprised 586000 412 square miles, about twice the size of Texas, and was championed by William Henry Seward, the enthusiastically expansionist Secretary of State under President Andrew Johnson. We'll listen today to Ajani Clemens as she exposes the deceptions of the 13th Amendment at the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity. We'll examine this in contrast to Slavery versus Liberty the History and Relevance of the 13th Amendment at 150, which was presented by the American Bar Public Education Division. Then, our stories include arts philanthropist Agnes Aggie Gund, who is spending $100 million to combat mass incarceration. Also, CNN does an expose called Kids for Sale about European-American couples who are purchasing kidnapped African children in collusion with international adoption agencies. And here's a quote. It says, many years ago, the Supreme Court made clear that the Sixth Amendment prohibits jailing people under conviction upon conviction without affording them counsel. Yet, in South Carolina, the practice is still commonplace. As the ACLU documented in its 2016 report co-authored with the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, unconscionable and unacceptable practices that cause significant harm. 
are rampant in local courts in that state. In Beaufort and Bluffton, thousands of poor people are cycled through their municipal courts every year. Some are condemned to jail or prison, and none are given a lawyer. A new study says, a new Harvard study based on the Guardian data has found that half, over half of all police killings in 2015 were wrongly classified as not having been the result of interactions with officers. And finally, we'll try and review rising in the smoke prison rebellions across the U.S. from its going down. Our abolitionist in profile tonight is the resolute orator, publisher, and slavery abolitionist, William Lloyd Garrison. In the segment, For Freedom's Sake, A History of Rebellion, we will remember a rare historical find in the November 1816 Battle of Negro Fort. Our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is Loris McKinney, 60, of Memphis, Tennessee, who was convicted of rape and burglary in 1978 and was sentenced to prison for 115 years. He was released after DNA evidence ruled him out as a suspect in the case. Got a question or a comment? You can call toll-free USA 1-866-510-9025, and you can chat with us and other listeners by logging in at uberconference.com slash Network. Once again, I'm Max Parthas. What's happening, brother? Scotty, how you doing, man? Hey, what's up, Max? I'm doing the best I can under these terroristic conditions in the country still practicing slavery. Um, I, I have to just acknowledge that there are a lot of people, millions of people out there that's in a far worse position than me, and I just don't feel like I should be complaining about anything I'm going through unless I'm talking about what they're going through. Yeah, man, it's it's been a heck of a week. I'm still broadcasting from South Carolina for the time being. I'll uh, keep you updated. Uh, in any case, I have been like doing some serious research, and there's a lot of videos I want to share today. So, like much this program, I suspect today is just us listening to videos with the listeners, so you can hear them firsthand. It's uh, not the entire videos; these clips that I cut out because I think it's important not only that we uh, see what's being discussed by the people who actually make the policies and influence the policies, but also that our listeners be aware of these ideas that are being spread out in uh, all arenas now. You know, this is an idea whose time has come, and it's being talked about in every quarter, all over the place. Some are omitting it on purpose, and we'll call those out uh, when we hear them. So I've got, like, at least a half a dozen clips today, including the one of the sheriff out in uh, Louisiana, who, you know, was lamenting the fact that he wouldn't be having his best employees working for free no more. (laughs) Have you, I'm sure you've seen that one because I, I called you last week. And, and yeah, I actually you uh, reported on it on BTR News this week. Um, I know that Mind, Body, and Spirit will be discussing it tonight as they ask me if I'll be able to comment on that story. So the story's been making its rounds. Awesome, awesome. Well, maybe we can avoid uh, actually playing it in its entirety today. So since it's being discussed on the Black Talk Radio Network in several different areas, it will... Uh, give us a little bit more time we'll of course share the video now i did not i'm sorry max but i did not have any audio to share um so if we got some audio of this man in his his own words out his own mouth saying these things i think we should play it okay then uh you know what i'll do uh rather than since we would be short on time this week uh we'll we'll start with that let me see if i can pull it up here um i believe that i have it on my page so uh is it the one by uh, uh, Ajani Clemens? 
Uh, no, no. You, that's one of the videos that I want to play about the 13th Amendment. We were just referring to the sheriff from Louisiana. Okay, let me find it. I'm in the thread I, for, um, you I, know. I just posted it on New Abolitionist Radio's Facebook, and it's also in the thread for the NAR. All right, it'll be quicker if I go to our New Abolitionist page since you just posted it. Let me cue that up. Yeah, yeah that's quite disgusting. the information, man. just go to New Abolitionist Radio's Facebook page, and you'll be able to review it and share it right along with us as we're uh, putting it out there. Scotty, you were saying? No, I was just saying that it reminded me, Max, of the comments made by the office of the California Attorney General, Kamala Harris at the time. She's now a senator. But when they made that argument to the Supreme Court that we can't let this cheap labor go. Remember that when the Supreme Court said that they had to ease overcrowding because it created um, constitutional violations and, and that's the argument that they pose. Hey, California needs all this cheap labor. We can't let these slaves go. That's what it reminded me of. But I do have the video. Uh, let me go ahead and play it. I don't want uh, state prisons, okay? They are a necessary evil to keep the doors open that we keep a few or keep some out there. And that's the ones that you can work. That's the ones that can pick up trash, the work release programs. But guess what? Those are the ones that they're releasing. They're releasing some good ones that we use every day to, to wash cars, to change oil in our cars, to cook in the kitchens, to do all that where we save money. Well, they're going to let them out. The ones that we use in our work release program, they're going to let them out. And they're saying you can take a little worse criminal it's been long said that we were the number one leader in the United States for incarcerating criminals in our criminal justice system. Well, let's face it, somebody got to be number one, and we got some bad dudes around here. Now, I'm as compassionate a fellow as you ever going to meet if somebody deserves it, if somebody works for it. There you go. They have it in his own words, man. Like, you know, this also ties in everything I'm playing today. Because we have one clip from uh, the American Justice Bar, or whatever the hell it is. I'll, I'll give you the intro on it later. But in any case, these guys claim to be the premier experts on the 13th Amendment and the history of the 13th Amendment. And they're all on one panel discussing it at its 150th birthday in 2015. And uh, it reminds me, what he said in there, there's a judge that actually comes up in clip number three. And she asked that question. Is this prison labor that we're sentencing people to as some kind of alternative to incarceration? Is that a violation of the 13th Amendment? You'll hear that in uh, clip three of that discussion. So what do you think is, of that now that you heard it, Scotty, this uh, video? Say that again, Max. What did you think of the video of the sheriff and what he was saying? Well, I had read his comments, but I, it, it's you know also better to hear it because uh, some things come across better when you hear them as opposed to reading them. And again, the same argument that has been made in California. Um, today, I talked about the Democracy Now! report on women firefighters who are prisoners fighting fires in California. Listen to that whole clip and not once. I mean, they interviewed two people and not once did anybody point out that it was slavery. Okay. And I don't know who produced this particular video, but they do point out 
that, hey, listen to this sheriff telling you about how prisons are the new slavery. So, you know, the proof is in the pudding, and there's your proof. uh, Michael Harriet and and, uh, the staff over there at The Root. Uh, I I know a few of my friends aren't too appreciative of The Root, but I I like The Root. I mean, they can take a hit, too, because I've criticized them publicly before, and they, they, they understood where I was coming from. Yeah, the root. I feel um, I, I, I'm a just I'm ambivalent, ambivalent uh, towards the root. I know they put out a lot of propaganda. It's not a black owned paper. It's just targets black people, and right. I've seen some garbage in it. Raiders. Yeah, I've seen some garbage in it, and I've also seen some truth come from it. So you know, uh, um, I'm definitely down when they push in the truth. Yeah, they're the only ones I've seen who put anything like this title where it says Sheriff Reveals How Prison is the New Slavery. Right. And uh, that's exactly what it does. And I, I applaud them for being able to say yeah, that talk. out loud because, you know, there's a lot of punks running around here afraid to just say what's going on. Right, right. As opposed to they could have easily put mass incarceration. This sheriff admits to you mass incarceration. And, and right. then he also talked about we got some bad dudes around here. Look, Louisiana is not any different from any any state or the federal government. The majority of the people who are in prison are for nonviolent, victimless drug crimes. Okay, so so you know, uh, also Louisiana is one of those states that has to contract with private prisons to keep the prisons full. And of course, he didn't mention that. He just wants you to think that oh, we got some bad dudes in Louisiana. Y'all want to talk about we got seven times the prison population of China, uh, uh, that communist country, but you, you just don't understand. We got some bad dudes here. For those that don't know, this is Steve Prater. He is the Caddo Parish Sheriff, and that's him speaking there. And also, in case you anyone wasn't aware, Louisiana is really the birthplace of the for-profit private prison industry. Uh, back when Reagan introduced those into the system, they began with a women's prison in Louisiana. So they've had all the time from be- the very beginning till now to develop what they've got. And they are the prison capital of the world. That state is the prison capital of the world. And it's primarily due to the <laughs> to the excess power given to these county sheriffs or these uh, parish sheriffs who treat their jails like they're... Plain human trafficking and, and, and like their own labor. little kingdoms, yeah. like their own little fiefdoms or something. Their own little fiefdom, like kings over there, these sheriff, uh, parish sheriffs. So it's really a terrible circumstance. And there's prisons and jails in Louisiana that are 80% black. So there's no, no way you could tell us that there's no racism involved in here. And if you just listen to his words, he explains just what type of viewpoint he possesses. What did you think about the slave catchers in the background? Anything I thought that the visual aspects of what I was seeing there with these three black men, at least three in the image, uh, along with maybe half a dozen white men, was uh, it was heartbreaking because, you know, that's the truth of the matter, that there will be those men in uniform who look just like you, but will do everything they can to keep this system going because their livelihoods depend on it. You know, nobody's proposing that they get retrained for another job, so they don't have that option. It's either do it or don't do it. Especially well, they have done options. It for 20, 30 years. They have options. Don't let them off the hook that easy. Well, they I'm, have... not, I'm not saying it like that. What I mean is like okay. fiscal options that they, they do. You got your five years from retirement. 
and we're telling you to quit your job right now because it's morally wrong and always has been. And just because you woke up right now doesn't mean that it hasn't been morally wrong. And they're like, you know what? I can't do that. So there's some out there who have that. And, and there's others who are just convinced that these white people are superior, that they're right, that everything they're doing is okay, and that we deserve it. Uh, enter Sheriff David Clark, for instance. So you got possibly three Sheriff David Clarks standing in the background there, and that that's scary. Well, they can choose to leave. They could take early retirement, or they could spend the rest of their days gathering evidence on the down low to feed to the new abolitionist movement so that we can expose some of the inner workings that's going on. There's always a choice. There, there's I've walked away from a couple of jobs because I didn't like the choices that were being presented to me. And I said, you know what? I choose to leave. So I left, you know. And and so you always have, have a choice. Um, it's just whether or not you want to pay the cost for your choices. Do you want to accept the consequences for your choices? Well, if you're making a right choice, if you're making a just choice, then anything that comes your way, um, I, I would just say that, you know, <laughs> what do you expect? What do you expect when you're dealing with these corrupt people that, that you know are corrupt, you know are evil, but that should be no deterrent to do doing the right thing. I know you're speaking realistically, and I'm speaking realistically too. People do have a choice, but it's just not many willing to make the right choice. They It's just easier to go along with the program, like you said, and then at the end of your 20 years, collect your butter biscuits for life. Exactly. To them, they have decided that this profession, this job, this career is the most important thing in the world to them, that they, they there's nothing else more important. That's kind of sad. But let's move on with the other stuff. Like I said, we got a lot today that okay. I want to share. I've been doing my research, and I think that this is something that you and the audience will very much appreciate if you haven't heard it already. So let's uh, start out with the uh, video of its portions of 13th Amendment from Slavery to Emancipation, the 19th century landscape. It's commentary by uh, Ajanae Clemens, a PhD student with the Sanford School of Public Policy in Duke, Uni Duke University. It was originally published May 12, 2017 by the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke University. Uh, we are providing a link to the video in its entirety if you want to hear it. But I just have this one particular clip that I want you to hear. And, Scotty, it's a little over 15 minutes long. Uh, so if there comes a point where you want to just take a break to take a commercial break and then come back and finish it off, we could do that too. All right? I'm sorry, Max. I have myself muted. Um, we could just run the video and then run the uh, station ID right after it and then okay, comment. Good. Sounds good. Well, uh, I've done the introduction, ladies and gentlemen. Go ahead and take a listen to what uh, Ajene Clemens has to say about the 13th Amendment. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you, Cynthia, for the, for the introduction, and uh, Sandy uh, for being a great mentor and putting on this wonderful program with the Cook Center and the National Archives. Um, so one of the things um, about my past before I became a Ph.D. student is that I helped establish a government agency for the city and county of Denver called the Office of the Independent Monitor in 2005. And the Office of the Independent Monitor was civilians 
that oversaw the uh, investigations of police and sheriff internal affairs um, complaints, so allegations of police and sheriff misconduct. Um, they were, you know, in, investigated by internal affairs, and then we were civilians that would come in and, um, and ensure that those investigations were fair, thorough, quality, and timely. So I was a community, community relations ombudsman. Um, my role was to uh, basically be a liaison between the police and the community. I had relationships with communities, uh, with organizations. I would speak with them. Um, I would help staff uh, and execute our televised public meetings. Um, I would run our citizen police mediation program in which we had professional mediators who would facilitate the conversations between, between officers and complainants. Um, and, uh, and I you know, worked with, with folks one-on-one -on -one to resolve their police complaints. But because our office was objective and neutral, I also formed relationships with police officers. And so um, I had excellent working relationships with the sergeants and lieutenants in internal affairs. I went to officers' meetings, uh, went, saw how they were uh, trained at the police academy, went to Christmas parties, barbecues. Uh, I mean, you know, <laughs> I spoke with hundreds individually about, about their complaints to see if they were also willing to participate in our mediation process. And so for that five-year period from 2005 to 2010, I heard one thing a lot, and that is police officers say, we're the good guys chasing the bad guys. We're the good guys chasing the bad guys. It was more than a catchphrase, and even more than an ethos, it was an identity. And it, and it was and remains so. Um, but this is problematic for many reasons. I'll just name a couple here. First, it's not a useful framework to uh, approach many or even most of the problems that police officers encounter on the job. And that is helping people, often at their worst, to resolve uh, and sort of navigate their life's most complicated, messy, painful, vulnerable, um, uh, confusing life experiences. It's helping parents to resolve uh, you know, issues with their teenagers. It's helping resolve disputes between neighbors. It's shepherding people into a safe place to spend the night, et cetera. So being an officer requires extraordinary communication skills. And they're often mediating, interacting with um, people in crisis, and trying to reason with folks who are suffering from mental illness. So placing judgments on people such as good and bad can be ineffective because such labels too often get in the way of, of de-escalating crisis and of uh, problem solving. It's more often the case actually that policing requires you to set aside such judgments. Second, this identity in which uh, one is fixated on rooting out the bad guys is problematic because the truth is uh, they're too often not that good at distinguishing the difference between good and bad. And so as we have seen cases such as New York Police Department stop and frisk program, it's easy to miss the cues you should see, and then it's also easy to sort of misread behaviors into conclusions. For example, furtive eye movement uh, was often a cause used to stop and frisk people, search their person, search their belongings, in full public view of everyone they know, uh, walking from home to school or from work to home, and, uh, and going through their belongings and everything, um, but what is furtive eye movement? I mean, ostensibly, it's sort of this um, you know, shifting your eyes around in some sort of guilty fashion. But practically speaking, it's, um, giving, it's not giving police officer the kind of eye contact that, they, that uh, they consider to be appropriate while walking down the street. So clearly, this sort of subjectivity 
you can see how unconstitutional policing practices pile up, which ultimately is what a federal judge decided in the case of New York. This illustrates, though, how a fixation on finding bad guys and then not being able to tell the difference between the good and bad guys ends up costing too many black, brown, and native folk their freedom and certainly their lives. That was the case for Terrence Crutcher in Tulsa, Oklahoma, whose car broke down on the side of the road. Officers arrived, and he probably assumed to help him. Instead, he soon found himself tased and shot to death by a female officer. But that was not before officers flying over in a helicopter who could not hear anything going on beneath them declared, this looks like a bad dude. Hearing this judgment and what she felt was character assassination play out on the nightly news over and over, Crutcher's sister Tiffany responded, quote, that big bad dude was my twin brother. That big bad dude was a father. That big bad dude was a son. That big bad dude was enrolled at Tulsa Community College just wanting to make us proud. That big bad dude loved God. That big bad dude was at church singing with all of his flaws every week. That big bad dude, that's who he was, end quote. The ease, the ease which with American society and by extension its enforcement arm, prejudges are too easily mistakes. People of color in general and black boys and men in particular as bad dudes didn't just emerge from nowhere. This association with, of blacks with danger and violence and criminality pervades society and police officers step into that. But it did not appear by accident and it did not appear overnight. It was conjured up uh, at the inception of our nation by the Anglo land-owning wealthy male elite to create a fear that would motivate the white masses to help them maintain their positions of power in exchange for protecting them, protecting them and their women from Indians and blacks and in certain parts of the country, and at certain times, Chinese and Mexicans. Uh, but this special singling out of blacks for labeling to associate violence and, and immor immorality was a strategic decision by those that control uh, the economy. And the positioning of blacks at the bottom of the social hierarchy had come about in order to fuel economic, uh, America's economic order of choice. We get caught up. We get caught up in this collective character assassination of, of African Americans because it's so hurtful that no matter how much progress we've made in spite of everything, blacks remain labeled in this fashion. We get caught up in our outrage when news selectively reports on criminal behavior or when candidate Trump makes the assertion that you can't even walk down the street in an African American neighborhood without being shot in the neck um, on the rare occasion that he even talks about black people. These characterizations of African Americans are so devastating that it can be hard to kind of take a step back and look at the purpose of all this. And what is that purpose? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> this vilification has always been necessary to justify the subjugation of black bodies for economic purposes. In other words, some people assume that you have to sort of dehumanize people first and then extract resources from them, like labor or sex or the next generation of workers. Uh, but in fact, you can extract these things and then tell yourself a story or tell others a story about why you're doing all these things so you can still maintain your sense of self as a good person if you need to. So let's connect this to the 13th Amendment. The 13th Amendment states, quote, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall be, excuse me, shall have been duly convicted, shall exist in the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. For context, 
we need to step back and understand what was at stake for the American South with slavery and why they were willing to wage the bloodiest war in United States history to protect this institution. So I'm going to share a couple of quotes from uh, Emory Professor Carol Anderson's book, White mm -hmm. Rage. Mm -hmm. She first quotes Mississippi's Articles of Secession. And so this is uh, Mississippi's justification for separating the United States of a, from, the, from the United States of America. It reads as follows, quote, our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery. Its labor supplies the product which constitutes by far the largest and most important portions of commerce of the earth, end quote. Anderson herself then adds, quote, in fact, two-thirds of the wealthiest Americans at the time lived in the slave-holding South. 81% of South Carolina's wealth was directly tied to owning human beings. In 1860, on the eve of Civil War, 80% of the nation's GDP was tied to slavery. In a nutshell, what does this tell us? The American economic order rested on total exploitation of black labor. Today, today, what the United States has is essentially a $200 billion jobs program that we call the criminal justice system. It gives mostly whites jobs supervising and controlling mostly black and brown people. It has failed. It has not kept us safe. And if anything, it has created more criminals than it purports to catch. But perhaps that's the point. Otherwise, we'd have to come up with a really huge jobs program, um, which I can talk about during Q&A. The United States incarcerates more of its citizens than any other country in the world. But the fuller story is not just the 2.3 million Americans who are locked up. Right, or the staggering 7.1 million Americans who are currently under correctional supervision. It's the tens of millions with felony convictions who cycle through the criminal justice system and then face legal discrimination in every aspect of their lives, which we often refer to as sort of collateral damage or collateral consequences. Now, after relegating prisoners to the margins long after they've served their sentences, these returning citizens are legally barred from jobs, housing, voting, educational pursuits, financial aid, uh, any avenue to, to reenter mainstream society. So in addition to the jobs that are created to cage, warehouse, and monitor millions of black, brown, native, and poor white folk, huge swaths of the job market are cleared from competition. Competition for whites who would otherwise be forced to compete for those jobs. In closing, I just want to close the loop on this economic order piece. Um, the economic order struct structures the socio-political order. And what do I mean by that? The, the political order, the political institutions, the political rules, the public policies are put in place to serve the most powerful economic interests. This is what allows for a loophole to be inserted in the 13th Amendment in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. All right, we'll stop it right there, Max. Um, let me, Max, you're muted. All right. Can you hear me now? Yes, I can hear you now. Okay. I had to reset uh, my mic, and I got an echo going on now. It'll go away. Keep talking. Okay, no doubt. Well, you heard it right there. That was a brilliant conversation, and she really broke it down in detail. She talked about how cops have, and we just heard the sheriff say that, these are the good dudes, remember? Bad, the bad dudes. dudes. Bad dudes. So that's how these cops really narrowed it down to perception of who we are as a people. And historically speaking, they have been trained to believe that blacks 
or minorities in general, because they did the same thing with the Chinese and with the Browns and everybody else and mulattoes, that we are historically criminals. So that's how they look at us, like the Terrence Crutcher incident where she pointed it out. And she you know, also was talking about how there's this collective assassination of character going on, which is, is again, true. And one of the thing, key things that she did mention where she said that, you know, uh, what's happening is people think that you have to dehumanize a group first and then extract their resources and their uh, their bodies. But the reverse is true, as we've seen in cases like Kids for Cash, where these corporations will do the crime and then pay the fine, and the crime is more valuable than the fine. So Kids for Cash, uh, they made a billion dollars off of these kids. They paid $80 million in, in fines. That's uh, better to seek forgiveness than permission is the idea. So what they do is they enslave you and then they make up a reason why they're doing it so they can sleep at night. So I thought that was profound. And then uh, the last couple things is when she quoted Mississippi's declaration of why they were going into the war. I mean, it's clear as day what it was all about. She said that at that time, the state that I'm in right now, 81% of their wealth was tied to slavery. 80% of the nation's GDP was directly tied to slavery. We're not talking about North and South. We're talking about both together, north or south, but both together, the entire nation was tied to slavery, 80% of their uh, GDP. And that, you know, 200, what they have now is a $200 billion jobs program. Scotty, we've been talking about that for a while, the jobs program, and that's how they even look at it. The chicken farms, the firefighters, uh, the cooks and cleaners, uh, everybody doing everything. And uh, the last thing that I'll mention is the economics create social order. So, these police are serving the interests of the wealthy and the elite. And by default, because their economy is tied to enslavement and always has been, then the police are creating the social order. The lawmakers are creating the social order. Every All the sycophants who aspire to one day be one of these wealthy people, elite people, are following this social order and creating our reality. Yes, Max. Um, the thing that, of uh, course, stuck out to me was her mentioning the 13th Amendment and then going back to the loophole and putting the 13th Amendment in the context of slavery. That's very important. We was not hearing right. these statements, anything about the 13th Amendment that long ago. We just simply weren't. I wasn't hearing it outside of Black Talk Radio Network and the abolitionist circles, but it just seems that now and now more and more people in positions, you know, uh, like hers who are putting that information out to the masses. So that's just great, man. That's just wonderful that she puts that out there on the table. Um, because we just we just need to convince more people that this is slavery that you're dealing with, and perhaps perhaps there's no guarantee uh, that they'll become abolitionists and they'll be clear about what they are fighting and not so confused and and pulled in all these different directions and what have you. So I thought that was very important, and like you, I thought it was also important. Um, that she gives the she gave the accurate history of why Mississippi left the union because you know we had these people out there that say oh it was about states rights yeah the states right to practice slavery that's what you know so we got a lot of dishonest people out there and all you have to do is look the information up it's right there 
So uh, I think that was a good segment that on on uh, the Thirteenth Amendment. Yes, indeed. Uh, any of our callers want to comment? Otis, you out there listening? I'm sure you got anything you want to add to this, brother? Yeah, Otis not on the board right now, but Otis if anybody, oh, okay, if anybody wants to uh, call in with a question or comment, give us a call at eight six six five ten ninety twenty five. That's 866-510-9025. Hit star star on your keypad. I would like to make an announcement really quick. Uh, my wife just brought this in to me a few minutes ago. I wasn't aware of it, but if, uh, today, Ricky Kid's book came out. For those who don't know, just look up freerickykid.com with two Ds. Brother's been in prison for over 20 years. Innocent man, uh, and he's about to be exonerated, but through our publishing company, Prismatic Dreams Publishing, uh, his book came out today. It's a wonderful-looking book. It's called Vivid Expressions, A Journey Inside the Mind of the Innocent, a collection of personal and passionate poetry by Ricky Kidd. And uh, you can get this from Amazon, Amazon.com, uh, of course, and all major booksellers. So congratulations to Ricky Kidd, and I look forward to the day when you and I uh, hug it out, brother. All right, Scotty. Well, if we have no calls, then what we should do is take our uh, station identification break, and then we come back, and we're going to look at the opposite end of this Well, Max, um, actually, we don't take it to the top of the hour. Oh, okay. All right. Well, then let's, let's start with the next part, which will be the three segments uh, of the discussion that was held recently, uh, in 2015, actually, by people who say that they are the premier intellectuals when it comes to the 13th amendment and slavery and the history of slavery uh it's a it was riveting for me it's an hour and a half long we're not going to play an hour and a half but i cut out three five minute clips and i figured we could play one spend about five minutes talking about it and do that three times and then we'll run into our, our final stories quickly and our segments what do you think scotty um i'm following your lead all right, brother. Well, let's go with the first one, part one, clip part one. And uh, let me see if I can pull that up here for you. You haven't gotten it already? Yeah, I'm not sure uh, which is clip one. Um, is that the one, American Bar Public Education Division? Uh, if you look in the description, well, you don't have a description there. What I'll, so what I'll do is I'll just copy it and put, put it on New Abolitionist Radio so you can find it directly from there. Okay. Um this will be clip. I just pulled the one wrong one myself. Bear with us, guys. This is live radio, so we're we're trying to pull it together here. Um, one, two, three. It's the one with the picture of the thirteenth on it. Got it. Oh, uh, with the picture of the thirteenth amendment. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm still not seeing it yet. Um, let me see. All right, I just posted it to New Abolitionist Radio. Okay, let me get there. Just I need to refresh this page. Okay, uh, should be coming up here. Uh, let me see. Okay, here we go. All right, let me pull that one. Okay, wait a minute, I'm confused. All right, I got the right one. All right, so this is uh, clip one on the suggested uses for the 13th Amendment from the American Bar Dream Public the- Education Division. It was published on December 16, 2015, and I'll give you the names after we finish talking about it. During the very time 
when it was clear that you needed to use the amendment for something larger than the technical abolition of slavery, it still didn't happen. So how exactly is it going to happen today? Let me say a quick word. So in, in, in I think, 1990, uh, uh, Warren Berger uh, went on the, the news hour with the... Okay, give me just a moment. It stopped. The McNeil, it was then the McNeil-Lear news hour and said that the argument that uh, someone had an individual right to bear arms was completely nutty. <laughs> Warren Berger, <laughs> right? This is not a liberal. Uh, but 18 years later, <clears throat> you get District of Columbia versus Heller with the majority of the Supreme Court. Uh, now, <clears throat> people have dynamic preferences. Robert Bork, also a p- opponent of gun rights at the time, People have dynamic preferences. It takes time to persuade someone that an argument that they haven't heard before is, uh, has, has something to it. Uh, and so my, my, my argument is not that if you polled the audience today, they would say, yes, I understand social justice in, in anti-slavery terms. Uh, but you have to do the work. Uh, of, and I think conservative movements have done a very good job of doing that, the work of taking arguments that were once off the table and off the wall and making them mainstream arguments. Uh, and I think progressives need to do the same thing. Um, we're going to very soon turn to the audience because we very much want to bring the audience into the conversation. Uh, but we have a couple of minutes. I don't know if any one of the panelists want to add something um, to the discussion before we, we, we not at least call the audience, but at least seek their input. I, I, one? Okay. Well, I, I, I just wanted to say, I think that um, if you uh, talk to some uh, low-wage workers who have no idea whether they're going to work tomorrow because their schedule changes from day to day, they only find out maybe you know at 10 o'clock at night that they're going to have to go in tomorrow at, 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 at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, they may have uh, go in for a while and then uh, be sent home because uh, it turns out there wasn't as much business that day as the employer as the computer system thought it would be. That where you know they uh, she has a, a child she can't uh, uh, she does, she needs to find a babysitter. Uh, compl- no, no control at, at all over her working life and getting paid, you know, $8 an hour. And if you asked her, do you feel like you're kind of being treated like a slave? I think you might be surprised how many people might say yes. There, I said something provocative. Uh, equally quick or even quicker. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, if. One of the things with the 13th Amendment, as with any other provision, it needs the people to step forward and embrace it. And right now we have a very explosive social movement, powerful social movement that's resonating across the country, the Black Lives Matter movement. I think the 13th Amendment is an ideal vehicle for that. People don't tend to think of it because of the victory of the enemies of the 13th Amendment in limiting it to its historical purpose of eliminating chattel slavery. But it's sitting there waiting to be grabbed. Professor Medford, you want to add anything before we? 
I agree. Pretty <laughs> much. Uh, yeah, it's. I, I think that there are so many opportunities that that amendment does. Uh, it opens many doors. Uh, I think what has happened in the past is that because our Supreme Court changes from generation to generation, uh, we we go back to square one. And I think that perhaps if there was some other mechanism to make these changes, it would be great. But it seems that that is the only way, because we're talking about a constitutional amendment. But yes, it does become problematic because of that. Okay. Um Max? Yeah. That, was that the, the end of it, Scotty? Yeah, it stopped, yeah. All right. So there's an hour and a half almost before this. And in that hour and a half, these uh, spokespeople never mentioned the exception clause at all. And I just want to read off the names of who were involved. Well, before you read and, out those names, yeah. let, let's just talk about what we heard and what we didn't hear. I was right. very confused. I was like, do these people actually know what the 13th Amendment is about? It seemed like they talking about it in the context of it has abolished slavery. And also, um, revisionism history. Okay? Black Lives Matter is not a movement. It's an organization. And they acting like this movement on behalf of Black Lives just started when it's been going on for hundreds of years. It's just somebody came up with a catchphrase. You have some white billionaires put some money behind it. And now all of a sudden, this is everybody. Everybody is Black Lives Matter and what have you. Um, and then to say that they should be using the 13th Amendment as a vehicle, I think that was demonstrated in that article by one of the founders who was talking about abolitionism, but never talked about abolishing slavery. That act, one of the activists that's, that founded Black Lives Matter, the organization, remember that UK article where they're talking yes, about abolitionism, but every, uh, abolishing everything but slavery. So I was very confused, and I was like, well, I know Max ain't confused, and there's a reason he's sharing this, but those people seem to be lost on what the 13th Amendment, and then saying that it's a vehicle to be used. And, and we have seen some of the founders of Black Lives Matter try to hijack it and make it talk about, be about something else other than slavery. And I'm not cool with that. You feel like I felt, Scotty, this is the exact opposite from another intellectual on what we just heard. I listened to the entire thing, and for an hour and 20 minutes or so, they never once mentioned the 13th Amendment, all these experts. They never once mentioned convict leasing. They applied the 13th Amendment to everything from Orca, uh, as we spoke of here on New Abolitionist Radio, to as you heard her talk about people working nine to five jobs or uh, day jobs where they only get paid $8 an hour and comparing that to slavery. Not once did they mention anything about convict leasing. So this was the kind of the end of it right before the questions from the audience came in. And this was their final statements on the whole thing. And uh, as you can see, it was very confusing. Uh, and she even pointed out, you know, the Supreme Court changes from generation to generation. And maybe that's why we haven't been able to get this 13th Amendment thing in there. But they're never applying it to the actual slavery. Um, so the people who are talking, just so you know, uh, the moderator is 
Addison B. Francois. He's a professor of law of Howard University School of Law. Uh, you heard Edna Green Medford. She's the chair and professor of history at Howard University. And you also heard James Gray Pope, who's somebody that pissed me off on several occasions in there, who is a professor of law and at Sidney Reitman Scholar at Rutgers Law University. And when I say they are among the greatest or the best historians on this, it's not me that made that. They actually said it. Uh, the moderator, Anderson B. Francois, pointed it out that in all of the country, these are the greatest minds on this subject, but none of them do anything about the subject of the 13th Amendment. Amendment. Ain't that what he said? Right. Yes. But none of them had any working knowledge of the exception clause. They purposely avoided it, I would say, of even discussing it. And when they did mention the 13th Amendment, they would cut it off at the end of uh, shall be abolished, period. And that was it. Like nothing else existed. So I thought that was screwed up to begin with. And these are predominantly uh, people of color who are speaking. So that's the first segment right there. Anything else you want to add to that, well, Scotty? It, or any it, callers want to add anything to that before we uh, get on to our second, second? Ignorance and deception is not limited to a skin color. Um, but, uh, yeah, I was also, I took note, a mental note of her saying that somebody working a nine-to-five job or whatever their hours are, getting paid $8 an hour if they think that they are a slave. And you'll find that many people say yes. And I would say to those people, you don't know what slavery is, all right? <laughs> you don't know what slavery is. Are, 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 are you living below the poverty line? Yes, you are. But I, I bet you your experience from day to day is a whole lot better than people who are being raped beaten, brutalized and their labor exploited for the profits of others. They don't know what you know, slavery is. In part three, they actually talk about that and they, they well, I don't want to jump the gum, but they do say basically that we can't even talk about the 13th Amendment right now, an aspect of slavery because it would be disrespectful to actual slaves. Like, see, they don't understand how bad this is. They don't get it at all. It's just not. And these are part law of their professors. Mindset. These are law professors. Yes. At historically black universities. You know, not that yes. it matters where they're teaching at. But I would say you, I wouldn't be taking your class because you don't even understand what the plain English that's in the Thirteenth Amendment. And if you're cutting it off, there is a reason you're cutting it off. And I would say it's a deceptive reason. You're being deceptive. Remember I did a video some years back where it was um, not years ago, but during the 150th anniversary coming up of the 13th Amendment and all the newspapers and were writing about it. And they had this big ceremony in Washington, D.C. But every time they would write the 13th Amendment, they cut it off. And I made a video saying this isn't coincidence this isn't a mistake. Okay, if I had two outlets that's cutting off the 13th Amendment as they write about it in this upcoming ceremony and whatnot or celebration, 150th uh, uh, year anniversary, if it was just one or two, okay, that's a coincidence. They're ignorant. But when all of the ones I looked at was cutting it off, that to me is a conspiracy to hide something. And, and I can't think, you know, and I'm not one of those to always be talking about everything's a conspiracy, but some things are just blatant and in your face. 
And then the fact that at that Washington, D.C. ceremony, they didn't even have the text of the 13th Amendment. If you're celebrating something, you would think you would have it as the guest of honor, you know, uh, uh, po- you know, put it on a big poster for everybody to read. But you didn't do that. It shows that these intellectuals have spent zero time thinking about the exception clause or convict leasing, and they've never seen any connection between the two because it's not a part of their learning. And so they're just like layman's up there, apparently, when it comes to that aspect. And thank God for programs like this, the followers of this, the people from the different organizations like the Millions for Prisoners Human Rights March on Washington and all their different chapters and all the other organizations that push the 13th Amendment exception clause and modern day slavery uh, on, the, on their agenda regularly because you never know when we'll pop up. You could be somewhere talking to all, you know, around all these famous people and suddenly an abolitionist will be in your face with a direct question and that's what happens in clip two. In clip two, there's a question from the audience member. He's an abolitionist by the name of Charles Sullivan, and he's associated with jailhouse lawyers speak, and he has questions. And is that posted to the... Yes, sir. I put all three of them up, so it says clip two and clip three after that. Okay, which one am I playing? Because I think I just got through playing clip three. That was uh, one you played. Okay, so you want me to go to clip two? Yes. Okay, gotcha. Yes, sir. Uh, my name is Charles Sullivan, and I uh, am the leader of a international prison reform uh, organization. I've been involved in prison reform for over 40 years. Uh, and during that time, it has been discussed many times about the exception clause, uh, about uh, the motivation to eliminate it. Uh, in fact, uh, our policy advocate... Uh, Advisor and I are actually talking to people on Capitol Hill about doing this. I think the time is right, like you said. Uh, and, uh, and there are many reasons to remove the exception clause, uh, as we know. Uh, but I think perhaps the biggest reason is that we still tolerate slavery in our Constitution, no matter how you, you cut it. And slavery exists more now throughout the world. So I think that argument, as well as the argument uh, when you do eliminate the exception clause and you have prisoners functioning in our workforce, et cetera, uh, they're able to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Uh, the work ethic, which is very much in our society, very much a Republican uh, concept. Most, I think, think prisoners are sitting around uh, being warehoused, and I think that's true because they haven't been given the opportunity. So that is somewhat different uh, that has been presented by the panel. I would mind, wouldn't mind if, some, if you wanted to react to the exception clause because I think it is uh, very, very apt of an opportunity to perhaps uh, start the dialogue, mm-hmm. even if we don't pass it. ERA did not pass, but it started a dialogue. Um, Just as the ERA eventually resulted in a reinterpretation of the 14th Amendment, Mm. uh, the punishment clause, it seems to be, only excludes, only permits slavery and involuntary servitude if it's imposed as a punishment, as a punishment. 
Is the system today really have to do with punishment for crime or does it have to do with the creation of crime, making criminalizing things, and then adopting law enforcement policies that are certain to result in the imprisonment of people whose labor is then exploited for private prison corporations and private corporations? Is that really uh, as a punishment for crime? I, I don't think so. I think it's more analogous to the kind of convict leasing systems uh, that people now generally recognize uh, run afoul of the ran afoul of the amendment, although it wasn't challenged at the time uh, back in the late 1800s. So I, I think that's a, a, a splendid idea, and I admire you for having worked so hard so long on it. Uh, hold, hold up, Max. I had to stop it right there because I'm confused. Did that moderator yes. just say that he disagreed with him? Who you're listening to now is James Gray Pope, professor of law and Sidney Reitman Scholar at Rutgers Law Unit Law School. Did and he, he didn't say he didn't dis, he disagreed with him. He was agreeing with him. No, but he let, just let spent me back the last hour and twenty minutes never mentioning any of this. Somebody from the audience had to stand up and point out the most important thing about that entire damn Thirteenth uh, Amendment. And they all had forgotten it, like it didn't exist in the world. Now he's suddenly, yes, you're right. I'm in agreement with you. This is such and such. And he's pointing out convict leasing. He's adding all these things. But a minute ago, it didn't matter to him. I'm kind of confused. I'm going to have to listen to that section over. Because he seemed like he said that he didn't agree that slavery was still around, but it's something else. But I could yeah, be. Feel free I, to rewind it a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I could be mistaken, but let me back it up about, uh, let's see, start it right there. Labor is then exploited for private prison corporations and private corporations. Is that really uh, as a punishment for crime? I, I don't think so. I think it's more analogous to the kind of convict. See, that, I'm not mistaken. He said he didn't think that as punishment for crime of section of the 13th Amendment was slavery. He associated with convict leasing. I and mean, convict right leasing there. only came about because of the 13th Amendment, dummy. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. But that part of the, that, it doesn't compute for them. You feel me, Scotty? Yes. It doesn't compute because if it computed, they would have to look at this as slavery and their whole lives would have to change. Right, right. They have to admit to that we've been teaching law at these universities and we don't have any idea about the supreme law of the land and the one that, that affects our students the most, since you're talking about a historically black college and university uh, with the other two at Howard University. And um, uh, I would ask them, what do you think about your Howard University alumni, y'all sister uh, Kamala Harris, arguing to the Supreme Court that, hey, we can't let these people out because we need their cheap labor. But let me continue on with this, this video. Leasing systems uh, that people now generally recognize uh, run afoul of the amendment, ran afoul of the amendment, although it wasn't challenged at the time. Uh, back in the late 1800s. So I what the hell does he mean ran afoul of the amendment? The amendment authorized them to take prisoners and lease them out to companies and, and this dude need to turn in his law degree right now. Turn it in. Scotty, 
Me. We are on the same level. The very first thing I said when I saw this entire video was I demanded that they be terminated of their positions immediately. All of them. They, no. they shouldn't have this position because this is how genocides are born. When you got a bunch of ignorant-ass people sitting around claiming they know everything and they don't know nothing. That's how genocides are born, right there. Let me um, play the rest. Policy. Yeah, let me play the rest. I, I, I mean, this dude got to be feigning ignorance. He can't be that ignorant. Uh, I, I don't, man, I don't know. He might be invested in some private prison stocks. I don't know. Let might me continue. Be, Scotty. I, I think right. that's a, a, a splendid idea, and I admire you for having worked so hard so long on it. Well, I, I think this is an area that, that needs some work, that where scholars can do some work. Um, I don't think there's been enough work. I, I'm, I'm really not convinced that um, that the framers of the 13th Amendment intended uh, people who were convicted of crimes to be enslaved. You know, I just... Max. <laughs> yes, you heard her. You heard it with her own words. My she God. She says, the argument doesn't work for me. It doesn't work for me. What, English don't work for you? Is that what you're telling me? I mean, it's in plain English. What she has to do is read the documents that were presented during the congressional hearings from the senators from Ohio and South Carolina and what was proposed prior to the 13th Amendment, uh, you know, where they would literally make it illegal for the government to end slavery. That was the first proposal they came out with, and that was changed. And then the 13th Amendment was a compromise with the South. Yes. But they don't get that. Yes, and we've we've uncovered that history that has been published. She's talking about other academics need. This is work that academics need to explore more. Look, academics been writing about it, okay? Um, the, read the letters from Lincoln to Stevens, Congressman Stevens of Georgia. Right. Read that letter, okay? Read about the meeting that, prior to um, the conclusion or prior to in the waning days of the Civil War, Lincoln having a meeting with Confederates to call for a cease to hostilities to to stop, you know, uh, all this violence and, and come to a compromise. Man, these people I tell you, man, I couldn't have been in that room. <laughs> you know, I'm not convinced of that. Maybe I could be convinced. Maybe Professor Medford could speak to this. She's I'd see here, uh, but I, I'd like to see some more research done uh, on that exactly itch, issue, and perhaps some litigation brought. This might, I, even though I said I don't like courts much, I don't. But this might actually be an area where uh, some litigation is needed to try to clarify what does that exceptions clause mean? You know? Yes, if I could, and I don't want to dominate, but. She just admitted they don't we, even know. We what have it a means. lot of prisoners, uh, and as you know, jailhouse lawyers are very, very uh, talented uh, in the law. And we've <laughs> asked them two questions, and it's been very interesting. What has been the impact of the exception clause, and what is the impact of the exception clause if it's removed? Mm -hmm. Which is very interesting, and 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 it's kind of a mixed, I guess, view on what the past has been, but also what is the future? Are we talking about prisoners being able to belong to unions? Which I think it is, you know. So there is a lot, like you say, a lot of work. This has been very, very uh, educational. 
Uh, thank you. We're looking forward to, and I want to say that. He, man, I, hey, I know he was probably trying to be polite, but I'd have told all of them, turn in your law degrees. You need to go back to grammar school and, and take a remedial reading class because the 13th Amendment says neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted and as Otis has pointed out not justly convicted duly convicted which simply means that we put you through the course shall exist well, not with- everywhere in Georgia is for contempt of court yeah, you well, you know, but it's still through the course yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, how much studying do you need to do, woman, on this? It is right there in plain and simple English, Max. We got to call. Pissed off as I was, bro. Oh my god, because they're blatantly lying, man, or they're blatantly ignorant. And and see, this is why Scotty Reed. <laughs> sorry to talk about myself in third person. This is why Scotty Reed did not find out that slavery was never abolished until he was 45 years old. Man, cause it is. right, that's why. But you know what? We cannot forget one thing very important uh, about this whole conversation, and that was the abolitionists who stood up and spoke to this uh, round table of fools, and that would be Charles Sullivan. So thank God for Charles Sullivan. See, this is how we change everything. Because right. we, we present the truth to these so-called intellectuals and then they start stuttering and the wondering experts. and they don't know nothing all of a sudden when they were just the best in the world a minute ago. You knew it all a minute ago. And now you don't know. Now you admit that you know nothing about it. Well, we got a, a call from L.A. Ramon and, and then we'll go to Otis. Um, but we missed our break. Please hold on, callers. We'll come to you right after the top of the hour. Uh, I mean, excuse me, right after this station identification break. Max. What Scotty said. <laughs> You're listening <laughs> to New Abolitionist Radio. We'll be right back after this. No, I'm not a writer. Okay. Black Talk Radio since 2008, providing new black media for the masses. Welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, we got a couple of callers, you said, Scotty? Uh, L.A. Ramon? Oh, yeah, L.A. Ramon is up. Uh, Otis muted himself, but Otis, if you had a comment, you know, you're welcome to join. Uh, L.A. Ramon, uh, thanks for calling in the New Abolitionist Radio. What's on your mind tonight, brother? Hey, what's up, Scotty? And Max and Otis and everybody else. Man, Scotty, me and my wife, you know, we was listening online at first, and then we listened to I was in and out, but I was able to catch that portion where that woman was reading. But I first want to say to you, brother Scotty, man, calm down so you don't get your blood pressure up, man. <laughs> but I, <laughs> I understand why you do it because it does bring out the fire, man. It makes you, it just makes you want to reach him and grab him by the neck, man, and just choke it all out of him. But <laughs> she admitted that she knew what y'all were saying. That's why I'm telling Scotty, don't, don't, don't get raised up like that, man. She said it. I don't think the founders intended so she even read she said I read it I know what they were talking about so she in between the lines she admitted I know this is slavery 
And then she asks for better arguments, but uh, she's not reading the right arguments. Well, what it says to me, this is what I got out of it. That's why I was like, man, Scotty is putting too much energy into it because he knows she's admitting. I read that, and I know it says, but I'm going to find a way to dance around it. That's all she did. Right. I'm going to need to do more reading what's confessing. I've already read it. We don't need to question no more. She just said it. I need to read some more. What more is there to read? You guys hit me to the fact how short of a, I don't even know if it's a whole paragraph. 47 words. That's it. In its entirety. And these are law professors. These are the people we go pay good, good money to, to say, tell us how to solve a problem that they already didn't solve. They already know how to solve. The scary part is they're teaching our young folk, the next generation, of what's true and what's false, when this is not the truth at all, and it helps to perpetuate slavery by ignoring it. Well, I wouldn't teach my enemy how to defeat me. See, that's why I felt I mean, earlier when I said I saw those black faces on there, and these are black professionals in the highest areas of expertise, and you just said your enemies are teaching you. Like, and, and Scotty said, you can't judge your enemy by your skin color anymore. We never know. Because these damn fools are just as black as my family. <laughs> you know what I mean? Max, Max, did y'all watch, um, maybe you did, maybe you did. But Henry Louis Gates, now, I've never taken a, 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 I've never taken a stance on him because I don't know enough about him. And what little bit I've seen him present by a documentary has made me, you know, raise questions like, how, what is he trying to present here? Because, you know, I'm thinking a man with that, like y'all said, with this type of level of degree would be presenting a more accurate story of our own history. But he did something last night. I don't want to try to explain it. It'd take too long. But I would encourage everybody to look at the latest episodes of these um, genealogy things he's doing for these white superstars like William H. Macy, who plays on that show Shameless on Showtime. It's a lot of uh, Ted Danson and all of them. <clears throat> well, in this last episode, he tied their slave histories together, and then he also tied their genealogy code or their gene code together as you are actually, like, for example, he told uh, uh, William H. Macy, they, basically they found out him and Mary Steenberger, they were both on this episode together that they were both tied together by the 12th gene code. Well, William H. Macy's side of the family was slave owners and, and proponents of it. It's supposedly Mary Steenberger Bergen had a family dispute as if they're going to be in slavery or not. It, one of them chose not to be. But all in the end, he showed, he showed the tie. He tied it together. Y'all all won. And I thought to myself, that's some the spook who sat by the, the door type of method. I don't know if that's what he's doing, but I, that's what I got out of that episode last night. Like, he was telling us, any of us that was watching, these people are in cahoots with each other. Right, right, right. No, I didn't see that, um, but I can get that from what you're, what the way you describe it, and I'll try to check it out. It's on PBS, Scotty. It's on the PBS, the Henry Louis Gates Jr. He's doing those genes those, you know, those, those. Yeah, I've seen the ones like uh, he did with uh, Anderson Cooper, 
um, Anderson Cooper, one of his ancestors, was was uh, uh, justly killed by one of his victims. <laughs> took a hold to well, him. Well, Scotty, watch his posture, how he's asking them the question okay. and having them read their own history. Mm-hmm. Just pay attention to him and then think back to the movie Spooku sat by the door and you will find that there's some very... Man, it, I, I'm, I'm saying, I don't know if the brother's on that level or not, but I'm saying it sure came across to me like that last night. Hmm. I provided a link on New Abolitionist Radio's Facebook page uh, for the preview and the link to the site where you can see all of those episodes. All right. Thanks, man. I don't know if he's on that level or not, bro, but uh, I mean, if he is, we wouldn't know it, and that would be the purpose, right? But I don't think he is. Um, I think that he's just like the rest of these intellectuals out there who spent their whole lives thinking slavery was over. And, you know, it's, it's not something to be ashamed of because we've been wrong on so many occasions with so many things from the earth circling the sun to the 13th Amendment. But to refuse to consider an argument just because of a fallacy, the fallacy being that's always the way it's been. Or, you know, or I don't argument, think that's what the framers intended. Uh, well, right. they they yeah. did what they intended to do. I mean, it's oh man, I, I disagree with L.A. It's plenty for me to get upset about because that woman was being willfully deceptive. Man, she she man. knows. I agree, L.A. She knows slavery was never abolished, but she want to call it anything else. But I don't think that's what the framers intended. Oh my God, yeah, I want to choke her. I, I left some <laughs> some messages on the YouTube page myself. So uh, if you look at the original, which is provided in the links, you can see what I said on there. I felt the same as you, Scotty Reed. Mm, um, mm, mm. Otis, Otis, so. uh, Otis, Otis wanted to chime in. Otis? Yeah, I, I won't take very long. Hello, gentlemen. I'm going to tell Please, you the brother. same thing. That Comer, Comer Cottrell that owned ProLine in Dallas, Texas, I did some work. He actually was trying to help out Paul Quinn, small college there in, in uh, Texas, uh, what he called it historically black university. They were in a lot of academic problems. I, I went with another guy to do some work for him. And he explained to me exactly why those people talk around things. Academics, their money is made by getting somebody with money to put up money so they can do some research to give you the answer. That's exactly why I don't get my blood pressure up anymore when I hear somebody that has a degree play around the issue. As a matter of fact, I I didn't come on your Uber conference because I was actually listening to what Max had put up earlier and I got so thrilled in it and I wanted to I knew where he was going with it because when all of those people on that panel talked, they actually talked about the thirteenth and skipped over the exception clause and went on to clause two, the second section. Yep. And it talks about explicitly it's the only amendment in the constitution that explicitly gives congress purview over that particular amendment that's how well I listened to this the whole thing and I'm saying to you that these people understand they get their money for all their research usually from corporations it's very and 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 trust funds so yeah. they know not to push the fact that's the exception clause because it permeates everything in this So country. some of their benefactors might be profiting from Thank you. slavery. Thank you. And, and I mentioned that, I mentioned you, that earlier. Uh, the reason I'm, I'm bringing it up, Scotty, is because if you get a chance, 
if you listen to just the first 12 to 15 minutes of that, you'll catch it when they talk about the 13th and they actually skip over it. And that's what I got. They, these people are academics. So they try to tell you what the constitutional decisions have been made. like with, And they actually talk about it with the Supreme Court. And they say that it was put in that way not only to stop slavery, but supposedly so that the Supreme Court couldn't reinstitute slavery based on what had All of them need the, to turn in them yes. law degrees. Turn them right. in, because I'm calling fraud on you. And I All mentioned right. this earlier today when Amy Goodman on Democracy Now! I played that segment on BTR News where they were talking about the female firefighters who are also prisoners there in California. And not once did any of the activists they had on, the journalists they had on, they basically just talked around the issue. I mean, they revealed some good information, um, but they didn't put it in the context of the 13th Amendment or slavery. And for these academics... Uh, look, they're not going to play me for no fool because well, Scotty, I'm sure... You know, they had, she has the very same problem too since they changed the funding of, of PBS because now the Koch brothers and conservative organizations, one time it was purely donations and our taxpayer money funding that network. Now, since they changed the money dynamic, they've got to get money from corporations and the Koch brothers have been giving them money since the mid-80s. So they, they, Democracy they, now? Yes, I didn't yes, know that. It, I didn't yeah. know that. But but Man, me, I had to send you some information on them. I didn't know either until I was in a thing with the socialists out of California, and some people sent me some information. Well, let me say this though, uh, uh, just to illustrate their BS. Now, their so-called historians and and what have you, uh, professors teaching our young people about history in the United States. If she needed more research, I'm sure these people have heard of the black codes that was put in place after the 13th Amendment. They mentioned the convict leasing program. I mean, it's just slavery by another name. Had they not seen that documentary, Slavery by Another Name, which has been out for over a decade? I, I'm not sure when it was first produced, but when I come across people like that, I, I'm like, man, I detect willful deception. I don't think it's ignorance. I may have misused that word. I don't think they're ignorant about it. I, I oh, think no, I, I, I agree deceptive. with you. It has to do with the paycheck. You can't make it in academic circles anymore unless you appease the people that are doing the endowments and the trust funds. You know, there's some interconnectedness going on here, and it's really important. And, and words are very important, which is why when I say this, quote, a discussion among the willfully ignorant isn't a discussion. It's a circus of fools. It's where genocides begin. I mean that literally. This is where genocides begin. This is what you're teaching. This is what the Supreme Court is referencing when they come to their conclusions. These are what lawyers are talking about because you have this type of influence in these positions. Not only are you being referenced and published and your word is law, allegedly, but there's people who are coming up in the next generation are being misled in the same direction by the same lies, which leads to millions and millions of deaths, millions of uh, abuses, millions upon millions of incarcerations because of your dumb ass sitting up there talking about something like this. Well, Max, I, I think you got a third clip coming up that kind of hits yes. on the nuance of that because of 
they uh, they also get into how the Supreme Court determines whether or not something is in 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 uh, involuntary servitude or punishment based on whether or not it's a rehab or the so religion is involved. You're absolutely right, and we right. should get to that third clip so we can discuss All the right. three parts in the entirety. Hey, uh, Matt. Yes, yes, LA. Matt. Man, everything you just said, you know what that comes back to be to me? Is you say that council of fools, that was a council of uh of warmongers declaring war. I mean, we gotta start looking at it that way. Is there a difference? I, mean, we, I don't see no difference, but I'm saying that's not foolish. I'm saying that's an int- that's woeful intent, as Scotty was just saying. I mean, we gotta start looking at it for what it really is. You, yeah, we gotta, gotta hold them and if yeah, we can trace money to their accounts directly from these prisons, that's one of the ways we hold them responsible. Where we start, hold, you know, well, RICO really? charges, like we've always been promoting here, and you know, that's really holding saying, these people accountable, putting them in those prisons that other organizations think we shouldn't have any of. <laughs> well, I, well, the only other thing I said about it. Hey, hey, hold up! LA still trying to finish his comment. Well, I, I was just trying to inject that, you know, this is where you have to look at it, like I said, from a, a if you're going to take it in the way you're attacking it, you're attacking it from a, a, a point of view of, of assault. I just don't see my enemy willfully laying down. So that means any information I have, I'm not going to confess that I have it. And I, I'm saying, you know, with, within all this stuff that, y- that y'all uncovering, the solution, I believe, well, I ain't gonna say I believe. I'm just saying it sounds like the way y'all going about it is gonna have to be attacked from that point of view. I mean, the things I would like to say, I, I don't want to put on air, but I, I'm, I'm just saying I think you, if you you put it out there so eloquently to, to make me see it vision wise. I'm like, well, he's already identified. We're not gonna. We don't need to sit at the table and and try to get you convinced that this is slavery. We need to be just attacking it as this is slavery. Right, right. I I agree because they know it's slavery and they obviously don't want to address slavery. They want to continue the myth, the greatest lie ever told that slavery was abolished by the 13th Amendment. Uh, uh, uh. It's like that family secret nobody wants to talk about. Because if you talk about it, you're gonna have to tell the whole story. So nobody talks about it. Right. You know. Right. Let's play but, this. Uh, last I just want to repeat something for everybody to be aware of. The uh, Human Rights Network has pledged that in 13 months we will have our first hearings, congressional hearings on the 13th Amendment. When that start happening, I'm taking their word for it. And when it starts happening. Then you're going to see all of these people start looking at prison time because they were willfully involved in a conspiracy to continue slavery and human trafficking in the United States of America and abroad. Hmm. Let's play this um, last clip. All right. All right. Let me pull it up. Here we go. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Well, hello there. Uh- my name is Barbara Kerhow, and I actually happen to be a judge. Ah. And I think, <laughs> well, good. And I think I have a very creative mind. Um, <laughs> but that's, that's not what my question is. It's just an aside. In, in the court system, when a defendant is sentenced, an alternative to incarceration is something we call community service. And mm-hmm. I have always thought that that was a very creative way of not incarcerating a person 
to give them an opportunity to serve the community, um, to maybe better themselves, to make new friendships, maybe to get a job by the end of it. But when I think about it in the context of what you're talking about, these are people who are out there doing this community service job without any pay. Is that involuntary servitude? Um, I would say no. Uh, the standard, it's very interesting. Uh, hey, there's a set of cases. Uh, these uh, people just, are I, pissing me off, man. I just want to remind you who's just said that again. A judge. Uh, that was Pope. That, that was James Gray Pope, professor of law and Sidney Reitman scholar at Rutgers Law School. That was him that said it again. Yeah, and this is a judge, and she knows what it is. She knows this, and she calling it involuntary servitude instead of slavery, but she knows what it is. And, and, and we just went over the chicken farms, right? Man. <laughs> and that's what she's talking about. Oh. Involving inmates in mental institutions and other kinds of institutions. Um, also, children in a religious... Oh, summer camp um, and in these cases the base and also uh, high school uh, community service requirements mm -hmm. and in these cases uh, un unlike other areas of, uh, of 13th amendment applications to present day problems judges really haven't had that much trouble dealing with it they say if there's a genuine purpose in, a, say, a mental institution that somebody needs to do their share of the chores to help make the institution run, and if there's a rehabilitative purpose so that's in their own interest, which I think is basically you're saying this is a rehabilitative criminal policy, uh, then uh, there's no problem. But if it's not a genuine rehabilitative purpose or if there's exploitation going on, then it becomes involuntary servitude. And this was uh, applied in a case involving children in a uh, religious camp who were being made to do uh, unpaid work and that work was being exploited and the uh, owners of the camp said, no, we're doing it because they're kids and we think they need mm -hmm. to be educated. And okay. The court didn't have any trouble getting in there and saying, eh, eh. Well, I'm happy to hear that we're not violating the 13th Amendment. <laughs> yes. Um, we, have, we have a little bit of time left, and I wonder if I can ask the panel, perhaps speaking up or picking up on Professor Coombs' point, to address one last question as, 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 as we try to end. Professor Coombs' point was that the lived experience of slavery for black women was in fact very different than the lived experience of slavery uh, for black men. But what they had in common was that it was a lived experience. In other words, slavery was man, not these just people are slavery. full it of shit, man. It was an actual lived experience for millions of people. Mm -hmm. And that experience has informed, for better or for worse, part of our cultural identity and part of our cultural narrative. And I'm wondering what would happen if you were to try to reframe a larger social justice movement in terms of slavery. 
wouldn't you get some pushback by saying that this attempt to broaden the narrative has the impact of watering down and discounting the very lived experience of these millions and millions and generations of people who truly experienced slavery. And I think that's one of the reasons why you don't see people using the 13th Amendment very much, you know, in social movements as well, because I think people are worried about um, exactly that uh, sort of... Um, um, what you know, um, trying uh, trying to compare anything, you know, like when I was comparing a, a low-income worker, you know, who can't, uh, you know, doesn't have control over her life. Well, she's still, you know, she she's not being whipped, you know, she's not being, uh, she she can decide where she wants to live, you know, she's not being raped by her master. I mean, it's not as bad, right? And it's not. Um, I, so I think that you make a very important point, you know, that, that, that uh, there is um, a concern there about, and in, in, in to, in, to some extent, being disrespectful, I think, you know, of the lived experience um, of, of actual slaves. But I do think, we, on the other hand, we have this, we have the text. Mm -hmm. We have this, you know, the, the constitutional text here, and maybe we could think of it as being... You know, um, maybe it would be disrespectful also to those people to say it's to, to treat the Thirteenth Amendment as a dead letter that doesn't mean anything anymore. You know, after all they suffered, and many of them, you know, slaves, as Professor Medford has pointed out, had a lot to do with the fact that this is in the Constitution. Uh, any final thoughts? Just, just, you know, sure. it, it is problematic, but I don't know that we want to discontinue. Uh, trying to make our society better uh, if we say that we can only go so far with the 13th Amendment because it disrespects the lived experience of enslaved people, then what do we do about all of the issues that we have today if the only remedy is to rely on the 13th Amendment? You, you know what? I'm very pissed off right now, and I'm going to say this, and I ain't saying nothing else about this. Who funded these people and why is two questions that you should this be asking. This is the American Bar Public Education Who Division. funded these people and why? Okay. And aren't they all profiting from, I mean, they have no concept of what the 13th Amendment actually says. Again, they know, they know. I don't believe that these people are ignorant. I think that they have a more than a 12th grade reading level. And for them to sit up there and sit and say, no, when people call athletes that's making millions of dollars slaves, I take offense to that. Not because of some victim of slavery 200 years ago, but because of the victims of slavery in right the prison system today. I'm angry, so that. I'm going to be quiet for now. They don't see that, Scotty. They don't see the horrors. And let me point out what she said in there is, you know, we can't go comparing this to chattel slavery, which is what they originally said the 13th Amendment solely focused on. So we can't compare it to that because it's not that bad, as opposed to what? The good slavery, the merciful slavery, 
This is 2017. This is a streamlined version of exactly what we dealt with pre-1865. It the beatings. It abolished. It got uh, streamlined. It, it, it went through a revolution. It was modernized. The beatings, the rapes. Yeah. We the... report on all of that here on this program every week. This, you know, she was saying you couldn't, you're not your master slave, so you couldn't be raped and stuff like that. But we tell you all the time about Tutwiler's prison for women and them going through that there right now and Rikers Island for women with it going on through that right there right now and other places where guards are making women give them blowjobs for tampons or charging them for having a period. Those stories come from right here. <clears throat> anyway, I'm with you, Scotty. I was just as pissed off and I've had a week to calm down and really think about what they were doing, who they were, and <clears throat> what they were saying. So is is that the end of the clip? Yes. So all let's right. let's so, take our last break. All right, we're going to take this last break. When we come back, we'll have our final comments on this, and uh, we'll go into our regular scheduled segments. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio right here on the Black Talk Radio Network. We're talking about modern-day slavery and human trafficking. We'll be right back. Black Talk Media Project launched the digital radio platform, Black Talk Radio Network, the first such platform created to serve the black community specifically. Black Talk Radio Network has grown with a variety of radio hosts, digital radio stations, and podcasters. Web analytics say Black Talk Radio, the platform, has an online reach that ranks it among the top independent black media platforms in the world. All of this is possible because of financial contributions to the nonprofit Black Talk Media Project. If you love the work we do and the voices and perspectives we bring to you every day make a donation today to ensure that black talk radio is here in the future black talk radio is new black media for the new millennium peace and welcome back to new abolitionist radio i just want to remind you that all the stories you heard and didn't hear from this week's planning page are available now on our facebook page new abolitionist radio as well as on our community.blacktalkradionetwork.com page. So you can see the stuff that we weren't able to share with you or references to the stories as we were talking about them. So uh, any final comments, Scotty, on that one? Yeah, I think this is a deliberate attack on the new abolitionist movement. And we have been for the past five years pushing that message consistently that slavery was never abolished and I think this is a direct attack on us I really do I really truly believe that that this is a direct they're trying to get out there and put something else out there that's totally contradicting hey don't listen to Max Parthas he's just a spoken word artist we got this professor here at, at Howard University and he's telling you that that guy don't know what he's talking about this was published during the period that I was lobbying the uh, Bernie Sanders campaign and in discussion with the campaign managers about this issue of modern day slavery and then the Justice is Not for Sale Act of 2015 was issued so this came out during that same period so it's not like we were silent 
you know, we had people in Ohio standing up at town hall meetings with Hillary Clinton and mm-hmm. talking to her yeah. about modern day slavery at that time. Right. So that was one of the reasons why the audience was more uh, appeared to be more well versed and aware than the panelists themselves. Yes. Yes, I would agree with that. That they they certainly did. Um, and um, I think Otis had something he wanted to say after we played that third clip. Otis, did you want to jump in? Oh, uh, Max ended up covering it, man. I was, was going to say these guys these guys are academics. Their money comes, and, and I won't get into a long detail about it because I'm around Hampton University and a couple of other. And I've been fortunate enough over the last 20 years to work for quite a few of these supposed to be academics. They make money in trying to get funded for research. So they're not really, they're no different than the judges in the situation. They're not trying to change anything. They're trying to oil the, the machine so that it dumps money their way. No, they're trying to mute our message. That's what they're trying well, to do. Well, I, like I said, the, the their goal is, is to make money. So they have no reason to advance a change. Right. They need to make money to do a study. Unless our study message might is take this. 18, 24 months. Yeah. And, they, and then they get a PhD and then they publish. Well, also, People talk about taking the system down, but the message we provide here every week is the message that does it, that can do it. And they're well aware of that. So we're talking about taking away, man, tens of billions of dollars in revenue not to mention their livelihoods as uh, intellectuals yes. and their books. And one other thing, the American Bar Association, when the last time you heard of them disbarring one of these corrupt prosecutors that's been convicted, you know. 2016, for the first time in U.S. history, a prosecutor was convicted. No, I didn't say convicted. I said disbarred by the American no, Bar I Association. I don't remember any of that happening. Probably has, but I don't know. I've never heard a story of of, of somebody being disbarred for corruption. But you're right, Scotty, yeah. because you, usually when they get one, but rather than the, the association actually disbarring them, they'll tell you they they relinquished their license. <laughs> So they don't just borrow; they just prosecute. If they get caught on something, they they get to relinquish their license or not renew them. There was a point where one of the speakers, and I believe uh, it was the moderator, asked, "Where will this lead? This argument lead?" Uh, and, and it was in 2016 that they put this out. So since 2016, we can answer that question in 13 months. Hearings on the 13th Amendment, congressional hearings. Uh, RICO Amen. charges against probation companies, uh, also slavery and human trafficking charges against private detention centers by the immigrants themselves. All of these are things that happened since they put this out. Well, also since they put this out, we got the 13th from Ava DuVernay. Exactly. So, so I would like to hear what their commentary would be on that film. I really want to say something. Well, I just wanted to reinforce what you were saying, Max. Recall, recall every one of them, the moderator, the so-called judge, and it sounded like it might have been a a black woman at the last, every one of them acknowledged that the 13th Amendment is being, is considered for legal procedures when they were dealing with them kids. 
they admitted it when they were talking about the day camp and the guy spoke of it, it sounded like it's a, it was a, a camp of joy. Uh, remember when that woman said, if, if, I'm glad to know we didn't violate any 13th Amendment. Mm -hmm. uh, she even started her conversation out by saying, let's put this in context. This is why I keep re reinforcing what, I, what, what I'm saying about how you guys are attacking it. When I hear the word context, I look at it just for what it says. This is text of a kind. <laughs> Word. Thank you. Right. I'm, I'm the poet, man. I understand the power of the word. It's why I use the word sword. Why I became so damn good and, and at then, it because I know how powerful it is. And then, Max, they were comparing apples to oranges. A private entity. These children weren't ordered by the court to go to that Christian retreat or, or wherever. So that's apples and oranges. That's not, you're talking about community service. She was talking about I'm sentencing people to community service instead of sending them to prison. The what, chicken farms. Yeah, that's apples and oranges. Okay, it's all we we know slavery has been abolished in terms of I can't practice it. Max can't practice it. L.A. can't practice it. Otis can't go kidnap somebody and make a slave out of him. He can't. It, that's already outlawed. Okay, right. we're talking about legalized slavery. But you can go buy some stock, and that'll make you a slave owner. Yeah, that's true. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm that's done. how we get around it. Yeah, I'm done with that segment. Uh, uh, all right. Man. Well, let me just give the names of who was speaking as a reminder, and this is research worthy. So, if you want to, you know, really understand the system and what's being discussed about it uh, on the really intricate levels at the, the highest, allegedly people that know it all, <laughs> then really you need to look at this in its entirety. Uh, this came from Slavery versus Liberty, the history and relevance of the 13th Amendment at 150 years old. It was done on the anniversary of the 13th Amendment originally. It's a Leon Jaworski public program. Uh, presiding was Paulette Brown, president of the American Bar Association, which is what this was also presented by, the American Bar Association. Uh, you had Danielle Holly Walker, the dean of Howard University School of Law. Harry S. Johnson, the chair of the ABA Standing Committee on Public Education. The moderator was Anderson B. Francois, professor of law, Howard University School of Law. The panelists were Jamel Green, uh, the vice dean and professor of law at Columbia Law School. And then you had Edna Green Medford, chair and professor of history, Howard University. James Gray Pope, the man that we all love to hate. Professor of Law and Sidney Reitman Scholar, Rutgers Law School, and Rebecca Zeitlow from the Charles W. Fornoff Professor of Law and Values, University of Toledo College of Law. So there are the people that put that on and who paid for it. All right, well, we're coming into our last segment, Scotty. I got to admit, man, I'm a little bit out of breath out of all of that one. You know, that was a lot to eat today for everybody, I think. You know, and very enlightening too. Uh, but we have our regular scheduled segments to get through. Uh, the three of them, and a couple of them are pretty good ones. You'll notice I made William Lloyd Garrison our abolitionist in profile this week, and the reason for that is because I'm in agreement with his stance that there can be no union among slaveholders. You cannot have a union with people who are enslaving you and you should not be required to sit down at the table and negotiate with the man who just raped your wife or killed your son or is taking you know, your property away for generations and generations. It's just not doesn't make any sense. <laughs> you know. So 
I'm in agreement with him. So today's abolitionist in profile is William Lloyd Garrison. And one of his quotes says, wherever there is a human being, I see God-given rights inherent in that being. Whatever may be the sex or complexion, William Lloyd Garrison. The famous abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison, a brief synopsis. William Lloyd Garrison was a famous abolitionist renowned for his efforts to end slavery and provide women with rights equal to that of their husbands, fathers, and brothers. His paper, The Liberator, was in print for over 30 years and was one of the most successful of its kind, promoting the abolition, abolitionist and former escaped slave Frederick Douglass, Southern abolitionist Angela Grimke, and others. William Lloyd Garrison was the fourth of five children born to Francis Lloyd and Avaya Garrison, a sea captain. However, in 1808, his five-year-old sister died. His baby sister Elizabeth was born, and his father left his family to fend for themselves. Left in the care of Deacon Ezekiel Bartlett, while his mother worked as a nurse, William Lloyd Garrison would try to make money for his impoverished family by selling homemade sweets and lemonade as a child. He received little formal education, an apprentice for a shoemaker and a cabinet maker until 1818. He was then an apprentice for the editor of the Newbury Herald until 1825. By 1823, William Lloyd Garrison's mother had died and his sisters had died the previous, uh, the year previous. William purchased his first paper, the Free Press, in 1826, but it did not gain much success. Affiliated with Quakers, he became an abolitionist and published the first issue of his famous newspaper, The Liberator, in 1831. The South believed that William Lloyd Garrison's paper incited slave rebellions. Nat Turner's murderous rampage, though not at all condoned in The Liberator, was carried out seven months after the first issue was distributed. Aimed at the American abolitionist, the Liberator was popular in the North and even reached English-speaking countries abroad, as well as the hands of Abraham Lincoln. The American Anti-Slavery Society was formed in 1833 by abolitionists from numerous states, and William Lloyd Garrison's appeal for women to take note was not in vain. The female Anti-Slavery Society raised funds to assist the circulation of the Liberator. When Lloyd Garrison married Helen Benson, in 1834, a woman from an abolitionist family, the two had seven children together. However, the sev however, of the seven, Charles and Elizabeth did not survive into adulthood. William Lloyd Garrison experienced full mob brutality in 1835 when he agreed to stand in for the abolitionist George Thompson in order to give a lecture at the Boston Female Anti-Slavery Society. The mob had other ideas. While William Lloyd Garrison was kicked... Uh, William Lloyd Garrison was kicked in the head and dragged through the streets with a rope until the sheriff arrested him, thus saving his life. It was this scene that Wendell Phillips had seen from the window of his law firm, inspiring to him to become a fellow abolitionist. Through William Lloyd Garrison's paper, the Southern abolitionist Angela Grimke was quickly catapulted to fame when he published the letter without permission in The Liberator. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio salute you, Brother William Lloyd. Garrison. Salute. Word, man. William Lloyd was like a hardcore, and he, he had nothing. Came out of nowhere. When he started the Liberator, he was homeless. Look at the effect it had. Right. It inspired so many. But he would not budge. That was one thing about him I really admired. He would not budge. He was like, no. <laughs> we are not going to sit down and, and break bread with the same person that just did all of this. He needs to be in prison. We can't come together on this. That's why I say 100% unity is impossible in my book because I refuse, I refuse to to uh, 
work with people like the ones we just heard on that panel. I don't want nothing to do with them. Yes, yes. We we have a cloud of those types of people around us all the time, man. I see you. Trust me, I see you. I know you. I know your name. You lucky I ain't calling it out loud right now. There's a bunch of you. Anyway, Scotty, uh, would you like to do our a rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad, uh, the wrongfully convicted Tennessee man who got $75 after 31 years in prison? Uh, I was actually pulling up the slavery rebellion because I don't okay. see links for well, any of these, but... Yes, um, that is something special we've never heard before. At least I've never heard of it. I don't think uh, you have either. So I thought it would be a great jewel, but you're going to have to uh, break it down to the short version. That's the Wikipedia, yeah, and you so, know that's super long. So if you, uh, if you want to do the other one, go ahead and get prepared for that. And I am aware of, of the history of Florida and how victims of slavery ran away to Florida and were aided by the Seminole Indians and and how they had uh, battled uh, Andrew Jackson, that racist slaver, battled, you know, the U.S. Army to a standstill. But this is talking about one particular battle. It's the Battle of yes. Negro Fort. Um, it was a short military siege in 1816 in which forces of the United States assaulted and managed to blow up an African-American fortified stronghold in the frontier of northern Spanish Florida. It was the first major engagement of the Seminole Wars period and marked the beginning of General Andrew Jackson's conquest of Florida. In 1814 during the War of 1812 the British Royal Marines established what was known as the Negro Fort on Prospect Bluff along along the Spanish side of the Apalachicola River. The garrison initially included around 1,000 Britons and several hundred African Americans who were recruited as a detached unit of the Corps of Colonial Marines. See this is who um, um, Francis Scott Keyes was mocking when he wrote the national anthem. He was mocking these people, uh, the African Americans. Uh, shortly after the end of the war in 1815, the British paid off the colonial Marines, withdrew from the post, and left the black population in occupation. Over the next few years, the fort became a colony for uh, escaped victims of slavery from Pensacola and Georgia. By 1816, over 800 freed men and women had settled around the fort. There were also friendly natives in the area. Following the construction of Fort Scott on the front Flint River by Colonel Duncan Lamont Clinch of the United States Army, Andrew Jackson decided that to resupply the post, they would have to use the Navy to transport the goods. Uh, through the sovereign territory of Spain without their permission. Always, always violating other people. During one of these resupply missions, a party of sailors from gunboats 149 and 154 stopped along the river near Negro Fort to fill their canteens with water. While doing so, they were attacked by the garrison of the fort and all but one of them were killed. In response, Jackson requested permission to attack the fort. They then dispatched gunboats to reduce the Negro Fort. Secretary of State John Quincy Adams justified the attack and subsequent seizure of Spanish Florida Florida by Andrew Jackson as national self-defense, a response to alleged Spanish and British complicity in fomenting the Indian and Negro War. Adams even produced a letter uh, from a Georgia planner complaining about brigand Negroes who made this neighborhood extremely dangerous to a population 
like ours. I mean, this goes back to something earlier where we were talking about, the lady was talking about the criminalization of black people and what, what have you. Uh, let me jump ahead. As the American expedition drew near the fort on July 27, 1816, black militiamen had already been deployed and began skirmishing with the column before regrouping back at their base. At the same time, the gunboats under Master Loomis moved upriver to a position for a siege bombardment. Negro Fort was occupied by about 330 people during the time of the battle. At least 200 were freedmen armed with 10 cannons and dozens of muskets. They were accompanied by 30 or so Seminole and Choctaw warriors under a chief. The remaining were women and children, the families of the black militia. So I'm going to jump ahead towards the end. Uh, uh, It talks about, who is this guy, Garson? Garson, 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 Garson. Uh, before beginning an engagement, Colonel General Gaines first requested a surrender. Garson, the leader of the fort, and an African refused. So it goes on to say Garson was eventually uh, captured. It was after they blew up the place. Uh, he was executed by firing squad uh, because of his responsibility for the watering hole massacre, as they called it, and the Choctaw chief was handed over to the Creeks who killed and scalped him. Uh, the survivors were taken prisoner and placed into slavery under the claim that Georgia slave owners had owned the ancestors of the prisoners. Uh, Neil Matla, a leader of the Seminole at Falton, was angered by the death of some of his people at Negro Fort, so he issued a warning to General Gaines that any of his forces cross the Flint River, they will be attacked and defeated. The threat provoked the general to send 250 men to arrest the chief in November of 1817, but a battle arose and became the official opening engagement of the first Seminole War. In New Abolitionist Radio, salutes the black militia, black militia, part of the Battle of Negro Fort. Salute. I love remembering so many things, but they, there's always this common denominator, man. At the end of it all, they show the brutality and the inhumanity of the oppressors and what they're capable of. Sell them and scalp them and kill them and hang them and burn them and rip them and tear them and slave them. Just on and on and on. It's all they ever seem to know. I mean, only a sociopath or a psychopath would take pride in American history. At least the parts that they show us, because there are some proud moments of American history that I'm aware of. Uh, some that I participated in personally. <laughs> you know what well, I mean? When I say like, American history, I'm, I'm talking about those in power. I'm talking about this government. Yeah. I'm talking like the Andrew Jacksons, the... the uh, Right, right. They yeah, put those sociopaths up yeah. front all the time as their heroes. Yeah. All the time. And so you expect the sociopathic history to be what they admire. Um, anyway, we've got a couple minutes left, so I just want to give a big shout out real quick to our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad and that would be a Tennessee man who was released from prison after wrongful conviction put him away for 31 years. And, and he's fighting uh, his exoneration case that could grant him a million dollars in compensation. And that's Lawrence McKinney. He's 60, and he was convicted of rape and burglary in 78 and sentenced to 115 years. Wow. An innocent man sentenced to 115 years. It must have broke his heart when he heard those words. He was, re- was released in 2009 after DNA evidence ruled him out as a suspect in the case. After his release, McKinney was issued $75, and he could be eligible for up to $1 million in compensation if the Tennessee Parole Board hears his exoneration case. 
which has been denied twice already. He says, I don't have no life. All my life was taken away, he told CBS News. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio say welcome to freedom, brother. Welcome to freedom. Might not have nothing, but you're free. Damn it, you're away from there. You're not in there no more. 31 years. All right. Well, I guess that concludes our program, Scotty. We only got a couple minutes left. Any final comments for the evening, brother? Yeah, I just want to thank everyone who called in and uh, shared their views and and, uh, insights on the issues that we've been discussing tonight. Um, That was very eye-opening to hear these so-called professors of law uh, BS the people and try to convince people that, hey, the 13th Amendment really did abolish slavery and just all their deceptiveness and that just disgusting and that's what we're up against and all all skin folk ain't kin folk that should be evident from that and that's why I say the new abolitionist movement while we do acknowledge that black people are the primary targets of modern day slavery and human trafficking the new abolitionist movement is a non-color coded movement we just want to end slavery um, and we want it to end it now and that's going to take boots on the ground. That's going to take people using their talents, using their resources to devote towards that end of ending slavery. So thank you all. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, Otis, did you want to chime in before we uh, finished up? Any last comments from you? No? Okay. Oh, man. I, Just keep in mind, we got another program coming up. All right. Well, I would just like to say, I would give like to give a hat tip to Charles Sullivan, the abolitionist who confronted these so-called professionals, uh, and I'd also like to say thank you uh, to Ajane Clemens, who spoke uh, one of uh, the first clip, who spoke about this with clarity. So it shows that these people are not being unopposed. There are those within their communities and outside their communities who are holding up the banner and speaking truth to power. And together, we can make all the difference in the world, particularly if we keep one thing in mind, that abolition is the reason for a revolution, so we can finally know some peace. Peace. Just lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times if it's time. Rise up, rise up, when death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up.